0: This week we'll be discussing the three treaties that tamed the first Wild West, and I'll be the guest. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Rhode Island Publication Society, publishers of the new book, Revolutionary War Defenses of Rhode Island, by John K. Robertson. Available now wherever books are sold. Visit their site, ripublications.org, today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, we have a very special guest on the program. Uh, It's me, yours truly, and I'll be discussing my new article, How the First West Was Won, The Federalist Treaties That Reshaped the Frontier. Now, for you folks that have listened for a long time, we are approaching our 200th episode, Four years of Dispatches. You know that I don't often interject uh, myself a lot into the show. Uh, as much as I'd like to, right? Uh, I have to have to tamper that down. So, this is an instance uh, where I get to share some of my own work with you. Uh, kind of do a deep dive into the uh, time period where I specialize. That is the frontiers of Empire. And look at just how important... Uh, diplomacy from the Spanish, the British, the American, uh, and the Indian world uh, really played in reshaping what was America's first Wild West. I want to talk about, first, a little background on really what were the driving motivators of change in the West, and most importantly, what were the major obstacles to peace and prosperity in the West. And to understand this, we have to go back to the 1750s. Uh, And in the 1750s, we're going to see the Ohio River Valley become uniquely uh, controversial uh, in the minds of the French, the British, and their respective native allies. There's always been a few obstacles to growth in the West for all of these superpowers. And amongst them were the fact that it just was not a peaceful place. Uh, When the British were seeking to expand, there were hostile French fortifications, soldiers, uh, military forces occupying the region. Uh, For native peoples, uh, whenever they would try to expand their trade networks, again, the geopolitics of Europe, particularly the conflict between the British and the French, often played major interference uh, in their own prosperity. So when you look at the West, you want to think of a few different elements to key in on. Number one, why was it important? Well, the Ohio River will be the center of British, French, and Native politics during the 1750s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s. Because the Ohio River is the great superhighway west. When you look at the frontier, and by frontier I mean western Pennsylvania, western Virginia, west Virginia today, Kentucky, and Ohio, you see limitless resources, fortunes to be made. But the realities of that are that moving those resources, uh, everything from timber to furs. Eventually, coal and even today, natural gas. Um, Moving those resources was incredibly expensive and very difficult because you had to move it via land. You had to lug it through the the wilderness, over the Appalachian Mountains, and then hopefully to a hungry Western port. Excuse me, Eastern port like Philadelphia or Boston uh, or New York uh, that you could ship your wares to the rest of the world. It was a difficult proposition. But if you could find another access point to the Atlantic Ocean, uh, in the West, again, your prosperity was limitless. And the Ohio River was that access point. The Ohio River was the super highway to the West because um, it connects with the Mississippi, which connects with the Gulf of Mexico. So the French Empire coveted this. The British Empire coveted this. And the native peoples who lived on its shores also very much coveted this. Um, that's going to be really important. Because that will be one of those flashpoints in Western history for the entire second half of the 18th century. That is, getting access to the Ohio River and controlling it. Now, that will lead to the Seven Years' War. Really beginning in 1753, uh, running all the way to 1763. Um Ten years is a pretty good stretch for a 7 years war. But so much of it will be fought because of that. And, of course, the British will win that war. And in the aftermath, again, you have this general sense that the French have been removed from the region and British prosperity will be theirs. In time, however, it would be revealed that that would be a pipe dream. And that was a pipe dream because... The British, as much as they fought in the war, didn't control all of the land they needed to, to take advantage of that. They certainly controlled all of the Ohio River, but the Spanish still controlled the Mississippi. So from the end of the Seven Years' War, uh, all the way to the dawn of the American Age at the end of the Revolution, the Spanish closed down the Mississippi River to major river traffic, and they did it because it was a real bargaining chip in their favor. So even though, again, Britain won the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, they were the uh, undisputed owners, if you want to say that, um, in the European mind, uh, of all of the land and its great resources of the West, the Spanish still blockaded the Mississippi River. So the Ohio River is no good to them without the Mississippi. So that's going to be one of our first major obstacles that we have to understand uh, about the American West at the time. The other issue we see is that perpetual warfare with Native peoples seemed to rule the day in the second half of the 18th century. Beginning with the Seven Years' War, uh, all the way through, again, George Washington's presidency, there was a very uh, strong resistance to expansion, whether it be British uh, or American, by the Native peoples who lived in the Ohio River Valley uh, that also Uh, will go all the way through, again, West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, even down to Illinois. Now, in the Seven Years' War, many of those uh, Indian nations will ally with the French. In the aftermath of the war, when the British expel the French, one of the things they fail to do or fail to realize is make peace with all of France's former native allies. This will lead to a continuation of the war, from 1763 to 1765, that we often think of as Pontiac's Rebellion. And again, for the native peoples who will be fighting in Pontiac's Rebellion, it's essentially the same war motivated by the same rationale that led them to fight in the Seven Years' War in the first place. They know the value of Western land. They believe it to be theirs. They know the value of the Ohio River. And they're not willing to just give that up because two European powers, a world away, make peace. So leaders like uh, the great Mingo Gaiasuta in the Ohio country uh, and Pontiac in the Great Lakes will lead a resistance war against British expansion. And again, the British come back to the same issue we've already discussed. Uh, they went to war to control the Ohio River. When they defeated the French, it was their windfall, But war with native peoples made really taking advantage of it, capitalizing on it, impossible. So that is, you know two of the major kind of points of stress that we're going to see uh, in the West in the latter half of the 18th century. The other one's going to come after the American Revolution. Uh, After the American Revolution, when the British obviously lose the war, spoilers, um, part of the Treaty of Paris indicates that the United States of America uh, will be essentially uh, ceded what we call the Northwest Territory. That is today, Ohio, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, parts of Minnesota, Indiana, and so forth. Even though the British cede that territory they don't truly believe that A, the Americans will be around for long as an independent republic, uh, and that B, that the Americans have any meaningful way of controlling the vast uh, and very politically complex Northwest Territory. So even after American independence, even after the British cede the Northwest Territory to the Americans, they leave their soldiers and fortifications in place, and intact along the frontier. Uh, And there was nothing really George Washington as the first president, uh, Thomas Jefferson as the first secretary of state, uh, or any military forces in America could do about it. Uh, Were the British wrong to do this? Were they violating international law? You bet. They were still in Canada, and they used that proximity to keep those forces uh, neatly supplied, Uh, and neatly reinforced. The native peoples who lived in the Ohio River Valley and other parts of the Northwest Territory were staunch British allies. They weren't going to throw them out. So again, you have this sort of replaying of affairs that will last the better part of 50 years from 1750 to 1800 uh, that kind of gets back to the same story. You know, the American West, the Ohio River Valley, and, and Northwest Territory later, uh, is nothing but potential, is nothing but opportunity for whoever controls it. Uh, first the French, then the British, then, of course, the Americans. But these three obstacles are always in the way uh, war with native peoples, lack of access to the Ohio River, and hostile foreign troops. Uh, Garrison in the region. It's very difficult for us today to visualize uh, a geopolitical struggle uh, that stands more or less unchanged for 50 years. Obviously, they exist, um, but just part of being an American from that pivotal period of 1750 to 1800 was that the back country, the frontier. Ah, uh, the Trans-Appalachian West was someday going to make you a lot of money, but it was the same old story: grandfathers, fathers, and sons all fought in the same war. Whether they be, uh, whether they be uh, Native American grandfathers, fathers, and sons, or uh, colonial grandfathers, fathers, and sons, there were these intergenerational conflicts that lasted for decades. And that was the story of the frontier. And If you understand those three things, lack of access to the Ohio River, war with Native peoples, foreign troops garrisoned on your land, you kind of understand the major stumbling blocks of what we see in the West. Uh, And one of the kind of remarkable things that President George Washington does in his first term of office is going to be to confront these issues. And it takes him a good while. Uh, And there's a lot of violence involved. Uh, But he will ultimately do that. He'll do it with three treaties. So let's fast forward to uh, the Washington administration and kind of see how he accomplishes what two empires, Britain and France, and even Spain to a degree, uh, could not do. From 1791 to 1795 the realities of what I just described to you on the frontier boil it over uh, in what still stands as America's second largest domestic rebellion, second only, in fact, to the Confederacy in the American Civil War, that we call today the Whiskey Rebellion. At the time, newspapers colloquially called this the Western Insurrection. And what caused the Western Insurrection was multifaceted. It's complicated. You can read uh, a very uh, simplified, direct primer on that. In my new book, The Whiskey Rebellion, A Distilled History of an American Crisis, due out in May of 2023, forgive my cheap uh, uh, plug, um, but it, you know it's coming out. I'm very proud of it. I think it really kind of reduces or distills the whiskey rebellion into something that is very readable and understandable. Uh, very few people have the expertise on it to uh really fully grasp it, and not to toot my own horn, but I do, and it's largely because I live, you know, right in the middle of it in Western Pennsylvania. Um, but at any rate. In that time period, you begin to see Western settlers rising up in rebellion against the federal government. And they're angry about a lot of things. Uh, They're angry about taxation. They're angry about being attacked by hostile Native peoples. And they're angry about the fact that whatever they grow in Western Pennsylvania, in Kentucky, in Western Virginia, um, they can't really sell. They can't really move it in an effective way. The only way for them to sell their wares is to take it, again, over the Appalachian Mountains toward Philadelphia. They're taxed all along the way. They have to pay uh, ferry duties and fees all along the way. Um, Alexander Hamilton, as Secretary of the Treasury, creates a new law. We we very simply call the Whiskey Act, which unfairly, uh, in the opinion of many of them, targets them and overtaxes them, uh, hurts the little guy and helps the big whiskey distillers. And all of that's going on in the background of an enormous Indian War that we call the Northwest Indian War that's happening concurrently to this Whiskey Rebellion. So many of these young men and older men, Revolutionary War veterans, you know, are defending their themselves from, from native attacks um, at the same time feeling they have to defend themselves from their own federal government. So they rise up in rebellion against George Washington's federalist United States government. Um, There will be open hostilities. Tax collectors will be tarred and feathered. Uh, They'll be cut with razors. They'll be captured and burned with hot irons. Uh, There will be uh, raids on the federal mail. Uh, Whiskey rebels will surround and threaten to destroy Pittsburgh, which is... Really the biggest federal city in the West. The unofficial federal capital of the Western Frontier. It's a really bad scene. But this is not a Whiskey Rebellion show. So we're not going to get too much into that. Uh, But George Washington will have to suppress the Whiskey Rebellion. And the way that he does it. Is by amassing a force of 13,000 men. From Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. uh, Leading them into the West, into the frontier himself, uh, and scattering the rebellion in a fairly bloodless way. Uh, it leads to some of the, uh, one of the largest police actions in American history. The Whiskey Rebels are rounded up, uh, held without cause, um, without evidence, uh, summarily in prison, some of them uh, tortured, uh by being denied food and water, being exposed to the cold elements in November of 1794. Um, But that's how Washington deals with it. The important thing for us, though, is that those, what we call whiskey rebels or insurrectionists, rebelled over the issues that we previously discussed. Lack of access to the Ohio River hostile foreign troops in the frontier, the British still very much in occupation of the Northwest Territory, and of course the ever-present threat of Indian War. So even though Washington leads 13,000 men to disperse the rebellion, and that incidentally uh, is very close to being the largest force he ever commanded, uh, even throughout the Revolution, and it's the only time that the Commander-in-Chief as president, ever led forces in the field. It's the first and only time that ever happened. The Whiskey Rebellion proves to a lot of Americans that those old problems, the old um, you know albatrosses around the neck of of the Western frontier, are still very much in place. So Washington, from 1794 to 1795, uh, will turn to diplomacy to break the West once and for all. And I want to talk about now the three treaties that do that. The first will be called the Treaty of Amity, Commerce, and Navigation between His Britannic Majesty and the United States of America. We will make that much more simple and we'll call this the J Treaty. And the J Treaty will be one of the first times uh, that Washington attempts to um, kind of alleviate the sickness of the frontier instead of just treating the symptoms. Uh, He'll send John Jay to Britain. John Jay will negotiate with the British uh, on a number of issues. Uh, One of them was the fact that the Northwest Territory, that is Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, parts of Minnesota, Indiana, and Illinois, still had British troops in them, right? One of those three core problems that plagued the frontier. Uh, and as a result of their negotiations, and again, I, there were other things on the table, Britain will relinquish uh, troops uh, and, and positions uh, in a number of forts across the frontier, including uh, Forts O'Fur, Fort Niagara, Fort Ontario, uh, Fort Oswegatchie, Fort Miami in Ohio, uh, Lerno and Mackinac in Michigan. Because of this negotiated treaty, we're going to see uh, the British essentially vacate that region. And that is very much, I think, uh, a a very profound moment in the history of the frontier. Because it shows the British acknowledging uh, that their kind of dream of, of keeping the Northwest Territory in their back pockets wasn't really going to pan out. Whatever happened to America in the future... You know, they were going to be the possessors, uh, at least as far as Europeans were concerned, of the Northwest Territory. So, right there in 1794, with the signing of the Jay Treaty, and again, it does a lot of things, that particular element of it um, alleviates one of those big problems the had always faced, and it was that there were British soldiers occupying uh, American land. The next treaty, out of three, two out of three, Uh, That's going to solve one of those age-old discrepancies of the frontier. is going to be one we call the Treaty of Greenville. And this one's particularly difficult to talk about, but it's super important. So after the revolution, uh, a Miami Indian leader named Little Turtle uh, will begin to kind of spread the idea, which is really a continuation of a previous generation's idea, what Pontiac and we were talking about after the Seven Years' War, that the only way to really retain Indian sovereignty over its land, the only way to guarantee a place for Native peoples in the new North America, was to create a pan-Indian resistance movement, which uh, would pool the resources of all the Ohioan peoples to defend against the United States. This long-term resistance movement, beginning almost immediately after the Revolution, just like Pontiac's Rebellion began almost immediately after the Seven Years' War, circumstances haven't changed much as far as the core dynamic here. We'll see uh, a large-scale uprising, resistance movement, or war, of the Ohioan peoples, the peoples of the Northwest Territory, not against Britain, as it was a generation earlier, but against the new United States. Um... Washington, having no United States Army at his disposal, but just the militias of individual states, uh, will send forces under the command of a man named Josiah Harmer to to break up this rebellion. He will be uh, badly beaten Uh, early on in the war. He'll send another contingent under the command of Arthur St. Clair, uh, the governor of the Northwest Territory. His army will be absolutely annihilated at the Battle of the Wabash by Little Turtle's Western Confederacy. That still stands, incidentally, in terms of casualty rating, uh, as the the worst defeat in in American military history. Uh, Casualty of upwards of 90%. Unbelievably humiliating and scary for the new United States of America. Uh, And he ultimately will create a new fighting force we call the Legion of the United States, 1794, under the command of... General Anthony Wayne, uh, that will march into the Ohio country, begin building forts and building roads in the Ohio country, much in the same way that British General John Forbes did in 1758. Almost an identical strategy here. And Wayne will find victory in what we call the Battle of Fallen Timbers uh, outside of Toledo, Ohio. He'll defeat uh, a unified Indian force who have lost their uh, chief allies in terms of supplies, uh, gunpowder and intelligence in the British, uh, and and they are essentially broken uh, at the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794. Again, this is not a, a, an episode about the Northwest Indian War, but it kind of shows the last stand of the native peoples in the Ohio country, and it was almost identical in its structure and its strategy to what french indian allies did in the french and indian war the seven years war to what pontiac and gaya Sutta did in pontiac's rebellion uh and now again little turtle in the aftermath of the revolution uh nearly another eight years of combat after the revolution though so the point is what we're getting to here is that after that defeat the elder sachems the elder chiefs of the resistance movement uh begin to say listen We've been fighting for decades. If there's going to be a way towards peace, it's not going to be achieved through war. And these elder chiefs will sign an agreement uh, orchestrated by George Washington uh, and and on the ground put into place, implemented by General Anthony Wayne, called the Treaty of Greenville. And the Treaty of Greenville uh, essentially says, Uh, That the Ohioan tribes will have to cede virtually all of the Ohio country to the new United States. Uh, They'll be moved further west into what is today Indiana, Michigan, and Illinois. uh, And they'll be left unmolested. Now, of course, uh, that's not going to happen. The Ohioan peoples will move, but war will continue. Uh, And many of those young Indian warriors see this as their elder generation selling them out. They wanted to keep fighting. Um, but the elder chiefs will, will broker this agreement with the United States. Men like Tecumseh will say, we must continue the fight. And he will at, uh, about 10 years later. Um, but that's a, another story. Uh, but the Treaty of Greenville, by, by forcibly removing the native peoples who had called the Ohio country home for decades, uh, kind of, uh, you know, the first chapter in the very dark history of America's Indian removal over the years uh, will effectively solve, as far as the Americans are concerned, the second big obstacle to controlling the West. What's keeping them from being prosperous in the West? Uh, it wasn't safe to live there because of the threat of raids by native warriors. With the Treaty of Greenville, 1795 and its implementation in 1796, that threat is gone. So, right there between 1794 and 1795, George Washington has solved effectively um, two of the biggest obstacles facing growth in the West. Uh, number one is getting foreign troops out of the Northwest Territory, something the, the British couldn't fully do for sure. Uh, and number two is essentially brokering peace with the natives by forcibly removing them from their homeland. Uh, and again, that's something that had plagued all Europeans from the beginning. Um, the fact that that land was still very much dominated by Indian peoples. And that forever changed the complexion for, for generations to come of the Ohio country. Because after 1795 and 1796, you know, the sun would rise over the Ohio country and no native peoples would be living there, really, uh, for the first time. So that last great obstacle, the last of the three, is going to be how we get access to the Mississippi River. And, of course, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to deal with Spain. And that takes us to another treaty, the final treaty we call uh, Pickney's Treaty. Uh, this will be negotiated by uh, George Washington's strong ally, Southerner, uh, Tim, uh, Thomas Pickney, uh, very influential early, uh, early uh, founder, if you would. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because Pinckney's Treaty is not going to be done uh, from a position of equality or a position of weakness. Uh, but when 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 Pinckney meets with the Spanish, America's pretty uniquely in a position of strength, which is not something you often see in the old world. Spain at this point is a is a is a collapsing empire. Uh, it's a shell of its former self for sure. Uh, Pinckney wants access to the Ohio. He wants favorable terms. The Spanish aren't really interested in giving it to him. He begins opening dialogues with the British as sort of a, a bluff to the Spanish, and of course they totally fall for it. Uh, and Spain will come back with a number of favorable terms uh, to Thomas Pickney uh, that will absolutely changed the fortunes of the American West. One of them, of course, is the opening of the Mississippi River for trade and commerce, uh, which will lead to just untold fortunes uh, for all of the people of the frontier. Now, when these three things happen, and they're all wrapped up really from 1794 to 1796, the changes that occurs in the Ohio River Valley, in the Ohio country, that first frontier, Are almost unimaginable. Wilderness becomes farmland. Uh, Plantations. You begin to see mansions built. Fortunes are made. George Washington himself was one of the biggest land speculators in that region. He'd been speculating land there since the 1750s and 60s. He'll see his land values, and this is no joke, increase by 50%. 50%. the region becomes, you know, parceled up, chopped up by wealthy land investors from the east. The poor people that live there, the early settlers, the salt of the earth folks, uh, they can't afford to live there. They're priced out. They're going to move to uh, further west, to Illinois, Missouri, Tennessee. And they're going to find the same old problems there, particularly when it comes to dealing with native peoples, Having access to resources and so on, the the frontier never it really vanishes; it only moves. But the Ohio River Valley, Western Virginia, and Kentucky will be fundamentally transformed, um, really after these treaties are signed, to the point where they're unrecognizable uh, to its early settlers by the year eighteen hundred. So, for me, as a historian who studies the West, who studies the frontier. You know, we often talk about how battles and wars kind of change outcomes, and that's true. Uh, but the biggest change, the, the biggest event uh, that fundamentally transforms the, uh, the early frontier is not done with a cannon. Uh, it's not done with, uh, you know, an army marching or a major battle. Uh, the real change is prompted by diplomacy. And George Washington, you know, for as much as we talk about his presidency, uh, I think, you know, I don't want to say he doesn't get the credit because he was behind a lot of these treaties, uh, but it's not well understood enough just how these treaties alter not just America's fortunes overseas or abroad, uh, but how they really altered the future of the West, uh, because I think that's really profound. So... I want to thank you guys for listening to me as a guest today. It's a rare treat for me to kind of take hold of the microphone. I hope you all uh, get a chance to read the article. Uh, And we will, as always, see you next week. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia.